Hello everyone and welcome to this episode, the onboarding one of the Women Talking About Learning podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jacobs. It seems onboarding has overtaken induction as the word we use to describe bringing someone into an organisation. I've been in learning and development for a while and I don't recall hearing it much before the early 2000s. It seems to have been taken on as we've started to use technology more and has leapt in the last few years as we manage different role types, doing different jobs, in different places. We wanted to get an understanding of what it might mean and have two excellent guests to talk through this topic. Our first guest is Dolores Gott. Dolores is a training specialist at Cognizant and has over 17 years of experience in training, facilitation, learner psychology and leadership development. This has been across several industries including event planning, marketing and higher education administration among many. Our second guest is Henrietta Klutz. Henrietta is an organisational psychologist and senior learning and development consultant. After spending years on both the vendor and corporate side of L&D, she started her own company, Pink Coat, in 2015. Pink Coat is so named since it's a statement towards an industry full of grey suits and, like Henrietta, is here to challenge. Recorded in April of this year, I strongly recommend taking time to listen through this whole episode. There is so much good stuff to uncover, especially in the last act. This is Women Talking About Learning. This is Dolores and Henrietta talking about onboarding. Hey, Henriette, how are you doing today? Hi, good. How are you? I'm doing good. So um, my name is Dolores. I'm based in Dallas, Texas. How, where, where are you based off? I am based in Amersfoort, which I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of. No, I haven't. No, no, I haven't. (laughs) Uh, It's in the middle of uh, the Netherlands, um, about 30 minutes out of Amsterdam. Nice, nice. How long have you been there? Uh, I actually don't come from here. Uh, My husband has lived here all his life, so I've moved here after I graduated from college. It's it's a nice city. It's big enough to be anonymous, and it's small enough to know people. I love that. Yeah. Uh, we, we live in a suburb of Dallas called Richardson and it's kind of the same way. It's big enough to be anonymous, but small enough to where you can find your own um, niche and everything, which actually kind of brings me to our, our topic today of onboarding. Um, what's, what's your experience with onboarding? Yeah, well, I, I work as a consultant, um, as an external consultant. So I come in different organizations and the question of onboarding always comes up, right? Um, and the diversity of how organizations are doing this is very broad. And there is some things that are always challenging and the same. Uh, so it's a topic that, you know, I hold close to my heart. What about you? Oh, gosh. Okay. So my, my experience with onboarding is tied very closely to my career. And I've played what I like to call musical careers. <laughs> so I started off in higher education And so I had a lot of experience in um, essentially doing like, what's it called? Um, Onboarding for students, essentially, uh, or orientation. That's the word I'm looking for, orientation. It's it's 8 a.m. in Dallas right now. And so I'm trying to get caffeinated here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry about that. (laughs) No, it's good. It's good. Uh, this is a good way to kind of freshen up the, the brain cells and everything. So, so yeah, so I was uh, involved in orientation a lot. I did uh, many years of um, running student centers. And it was just basically a year after year after year of getting students oriented into the university. And it's something that I really, really enjoyed because I, I realized I had a hand in helping these students from all walks of life finding their place in the university. 
And then when I went into corporate, um, my first corporate role was actually in um, marketing, but we didn't have an orientation program, like a formal orientation program. And it's something that I really missed. And I got to talking to a few people in, in my, in my circle who had moved on to other corporate jobs. And they mentioned learning and development was like a thing. And so I, I didn't realize that it was a thing. And so, um, I started trying to get into that field and trying to figure out, well, how do I even reinvent myself as a learning and development professional? I did it through onboarding. So, my very first learning and development position was dedicated exclusively to the onboarding experience. And, and it just kind of went from there. And me being the nerd that I am, I started reading all of these other things about how to make the onboarding uh, experience better. What role does DEI have in, in, in this whole world? Um, I actually found a really good book a few years ago from Priya Parker uh, called The Art of Gathering. And that book just like really helped me to figure out like what's the kind of environment that I want to create in my onboarding. Can I go back to, because I'm, I only know the corporate side of this, right? So if you go back to the educational side of it and probably we'll move back to corporate in a second. I'm fascinated because the biggest challenge that I think organizations don't do well, that's why I'm asking about the educational bit, is making people comfortable when they come in, right? They're not concerned about the background of the organization or the fact that it started in some sort of attic or something like that. They don't want to know about that. They basically want to feel comfortable and sort of realize that they've they've made the right choice. How does that relate to orientation for students? <laughs> so it's funny you mentioned that because when students first come in, you know, they're too cool for school. And so they, they don't really like they don't really care to jump into any of the icebreakers or anything. And over the course of the next like two days or so, you kind of start peeling back their layers because they start feeling a little bit more comfortable either with their groups or their group leader. And they start to kind of see like, oh, okay, well, this is this is the environment for me or nah, this isn't the environment for me. I'm going to go to another school. Um, but either way, like that's, that's a, an important part of the onboarding process is to figure out who you are in relation to the people who you share space with and how you're going to contribute to that space. Or if you decide I made a bad decision, I need to get out of here as, as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, there's two sides, right? There's the, the, the task side and the people side, if you call it that. So if you look at the people side of things, it's the culture, it's the feeling of, you know, do I fit in here? And, and am I going to make any friends? It's the same for students, I, I guess, as it is in, in corporate. And there's always this balance. If you look at the task side of things, there's always this balance of when do you give people more responsibility in order for them to get the feeling of they're contributing something without, you know, pushing them onto the deep end? I think organizations really often don't get that balance right, right? So they either give people too many responsibilities in the beginning and people get overloaded and they leave, or they they let them just sit and, you know, you come in and, and you know, the, the manager goes, take your time, you know, you, we're not in a hurry, you know, see see if you can you know, just land and then they get mm -hmm. nervous too because they're not contributing anything. Right, right. Well, and I think the, the issue there is like the, the manager may be thinking, oh, well, I don't want to put too much pressure on them, but they're also not giving them a, a roadmap for 
you know, by end of week one, I should feel comfortable doing X, Y, Z. I should at least have a little bit of knowledge about um, ABC. And then um, I'll, I'll just build on my knowledge there. And other companies, I think, go a little too gung-ho, so to speak. They, they go too fast, <laughs> too quickly. Yeah. Um, because they, they, they basically put you in a room for eight hours on your first day and, and then expect you to be an expert in, in, you know, the whole company by the end of that first day. And like your, the human brain cannot handle that much information in, in one day. So no. And i my, from my experience, you also don't give them all the relevant information. So I, I remember Elliot Macy saying once, what do you think people want to know when they get into a new job? They want to know where's the bathroom and who can I go to for questions, right? Yes. They don't want to know about the whole history and the CEO and how many kids he has and I don't know what. So you're, you're sort of bombarding them with this whole irrelevant information, really. Right, right. And um, I think another challenge we have is depending on the size of your company and depending on how you do onboarding, it has to almost be like a one size fits all, right? You you kind yeah. of bring in, you know, salesmen and programmers and customer service reps all in on the same day, which is great because I, I think it's important for those people to, to communicate with one another or network with one another and, and get out of that initial silo. But at the same time, um, you know, that first onboarding day has to be a big picture type of experience. And then like, as you go into your teams, that's where you get that, that, um, minutia information or that team specific information. Yeah, that is depending on the, on the size of the organization. Organizations in general in the U S obviously are bigger than in the Netherlands. Right. Um, so here very often we have a, a very big, uh, consortium of SMEs really, so up to 100 or, or 500 is quite normal here. And then you have a couple of bigger corporates. But in, oh, wow. if, you, if you're more in this, yeah, <laughs> that's completely different. <laughs> yeah, than in the really US. different. I remember, I remember at my first U.S. conference and I was sitting in the room and um, Elliot Macy was, it was, it was his conference. And he asked the question, how many people are in a small organization? Like below 10,000 employees. And I went, what? <laughs> that's the... <laughs> That's the baseline of what a small company is. So yeah, so we're a small company, which uh, a country, which means that the com the companies are smaller too. So very often here, and I'm interested to hear your experience. Um, you don't have um, a good size of a group to to put them all in the room and do some sort of onboarding in the beginning. So very often they get started in their job. They're mm -hmm. either buddied by a co-worker um, and then they have these generic bits and pieces that they need to know about the organization or how how other stuff works but you sort of wait until you have a big enough group uh, and then you and then you put them together so for example you could be in your job for three months and then after three months you would get an overview of the other departments within the organization because then you have a group of 12 people together for example mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is your experience different so in, in my experience for where I've been in my careers here, yeah, it's pretty different. <laughs> um, usually day one is where you get your biggest orientation experience or your, your biggest onboarding experience. Um, you, you, you get put in a room, someone talks about the company's history, uh, maybe what they do, maybe they talk a little bit about the, the company's values. And then um, they, they set, send you off to lunch or they send you off to uh, network with other people in your cohort. 
maybe go off to your teams and then come back to end the day. And that's probably the most um, the most in-depth experience that I've, I've seen. Um, I will say like the thing that universities do really well in terms of like orientation is they, they kind of almost hammer in the university's values into you so that when you come out, you know, you're, you're bleeding school colors, right? Cause you're, you're just so ingratiated into the school culture. And that's something that I, I try to take with me sort of into corporate onboarding, not saying that like, you know, if you're, if your values are integrity, then you need to know like what integrity means or whatever. But I'm, I'm saying like, how does it get codified in your business systems? How do your, how does the company do business keeping its mission and vision and value statements in mind? And how do you as new person, how are you going to contribute to that in, in the capacity of your role? And so that's, that's kind of what I try, what I try to, um, do with like my onboarding, um, at least when I'm, when I'm putting together programs. I'm, I'm curious about that because if I'm new in a job and I hear these like big statements, right? Mm-hmm. Values and vision and mission statement. And I don't know anything about the company or anything specifically about what I'm going to do there. Yeah. Am I able to answer that question that early on? I don't think you, I don't think you can. I don't think I don't think you can. I don't think you should until you're in the in the business for maybe about 30, 60 days, because you don't really know what the company is about. You haven't exactly. experienced the company, right? Like you haven't you haven't yeah. worked in the job long enough to know how the company does things. So why and this is not to be critical, but so why do you introduce them still on day one? To the to the values? Yeah. So if you're, you're saying the same thing I am, right? So in a yeah. couple of months after, yeah. uh, they, that's when they start, you know, feeling the company and understanding it and, and they, and they can relate it to the, the work that they're doing. Yeah. And I'm wondering, and I, it's not just you, yeah. lots of organizations do this. Why do we still teach them that on day one? You know, if, if I had to answer that question, I'd say it's more of like a, you know, this is our value. And so it's almost like a company, I, I wish it was this way. I don't know if it's this way, but I, I would like to think that it's this way. It's almost like a company is saying, these are our values. Now go off into the world and, and work. And then hopefully when we check in with you in a month, you'll see that our values are codified in our business systems. Well, you have to you have to sort of get them on board on the culture. So I, I think it's more or less a vehicle mm-hmm. for getting them on board on the company culture right yes um so yeah maybe the 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 way that we do it is still a bit old school like telling them we're holding a presentation or something i i do get the 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 idea behind it yeah what i did at um uh, so we redesigned uh, the onboarding program of a big supermarket chain in the netherlands um and not for for the people that are working in the supermarkets but uh, for their head office and the problem we had there was exactly what we were just talking about. Like, so they they didn't have enough people to have a cohort, but we did have to have some sort of program in place for them to at least know what was expected from them the first couple of weeks. And I sort of came in saying, I don't want to put someone behind a computer because they didn't have a group. So I don't want to put them behind a computer and then listen to the vision and the mission and the values and blah, blah, blah. How are they going to find it out? So basically what we did is we created this six-week expedition 
with different kinds of challenges. And so one challenge was that they needed to interview three people in the head office about the company culture and say, listen, if these are the values, how do you think that that's incorporated in the work that you do? How do you feel that leadership is living these values and stuff like that? So we sort of did the same thing, but we we had to make it differently because we didn't have a big enough group. And at the same time, I think um, it was becoming more alive for these people as well. Yeah, I like that you kind of almost made it like a um, scavenger hunt because you you, yes. kind of, you kind of put it on them to find out this information rather than you just saying it. Yeah, yeah, we did the same for the org chart, for example. So we said, you know, we can give them this slide that shows the org chart and then they go, yeah, all right. Uh, but we basically said, listen, it's all, and this, of course, you can do because it was a small, small head office. So we said, just walk around and make your own org chart and then check at the end whether it was the same uh, as the original one. So they had to just go into rooms and go, hi, which department are you? What do you guys do? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was not for everyone, to be fair, because it's a whole gamified concept. And if you come in, you have this like financial controller role and you have to do a scavenger hunt in the head office. It's not necessarily for him <laughs> or her, <laughs> but um uh, yeah, but for most of the people, it was um, it, it was a sort of a different feel around it. Um, I have another question though. So, if you if you let go of the 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 you know the values and the competition around that, I remember one onboarding for a very big uh, consultancy organization. Uh, it's a global uh, consultancy, but I won't mention their name. And we started out with this big group of people, like twenty five people in the room. And because I'm interested to see how you are solving this within your organization. And what they did was they told us everything we needed to know in a week. So imagine getting a system training in that first week as well, where in the uh, like on day four, you get an explanation of how to register your time for the projects that you were doing. Right. But you register your time at the end of the month. So I came in. I got the explanation on day three or day four, and then I had a month where I wasn't on any project. And then the second month I had to register my time. I didn't know anything anymore about what was being said on day three. Right. Yeah. How do you solve that in your onboarding programs? Gosh, um, that's a really, really good question. So I, I think this is the disconnect between task and time to practice right? Because if you're getting the instruction on day four, and you're not going to need to use that instruction until day 29. Why are you getting the instruction on day four? Why not just get it on day 28 in preparation for day 29? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, for me, it's the old way of thinking about onboarding, right? So we're giving every, everything to, to a person in the first couple of weeks, even if they're not necessarily using it. What would be very helpful is if there was some sort of performance support solution in place that by the time I actually had to do it, like on day 28, I would have, you know, picked up the performance support solution and know how to do it. It was fine because now I had to go to a colleague and they're always willing to help. But that got me thinking about how onboarding is usually designed from a perspective of the organization wanting something from the people that come in and they want to have the feeling that they've given them everything they need to be up to speed as soon as possible, but they're not actually thinking about the learning impact. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, another, another layer of complexity added in is that I think a lot of companies 
don't have enough resources tied into onboarding because they just think onboarding is the first week and then they don't have the resources to track someone's progress and someone's knowledge beyond that first week. I mean, there, there are some companies out there that I'm sure say like, well, I, I just can't track someone who has been in a company or in this company for, you know, day 17. And I don't know how to, how to see like what, what they know on day 17 versus day 28. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Well, so in, in my role in my current company, I'm not involved in the, the whole company's onboarding. I'm mostly dealing with uh, my team's onboarding. So I, I do have the bandwidth to check in on people um, at okay. in different times or, or different times of their, their tenure. Um, but the, the thing that I really love about how my company does onboarding, they have a, uh, an intranet page. Um, and it just basically says like, this is your roadmap. If you are onboarding into the company by day on day one, you should be, you should learn these things on by day seven, you should know these things. And, and it's just Mm. basically, uh, a cheat sheet for, for everyone to see. So like, if you come in and you're on day nine and your coworker is on day 16, you can go to that same page and get the information that's relevant to you. Yeah. And who, do they discuss the outcomes with their manager? Do they look at it and go, hey, well, there's only 60% of this that I am able to do. How am I going to fix this? Or how does that work? They're supposed to. <laughs> they're, they're supposed to talk to their managers about you know what their outcomes are, what their deliverables are, what they should know, what they need help with. Um, in my experience of talking to other people who are, are onboarding within the company, um, you know, for the, for the most part, nine times out of 10, um, the, the teams and their leaders, the supervisors are, are very, like they're open books in terms of information. And they're always super helpful about getting people um, up and running, so to speak. Mm. Um, so that's, that's kind of, that's another reason why I love the company that I'm, that I'm working for is because, I mean, one, one of the values that, that the company has is called um, creating conditions for everyone to thrive. And, and one of the things that I really love about them is like, they've really, really worked hard to codify that into their business practices. Yeah. Is L&D doing anything to support the leadership in helping these people on board? I'm trying to remember. So, I mean, again, in, in my specific team, yes. Um, our, our, our leaders hold um, leadership meetings throughout and throughout the the month or so to just kind of check in and see how people are doing uh leaders are encouraged to to introduce their new people they're encouraged to network within other with other recruiters within the teams um my 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 area of expertise is like recruiting operations so that's that's kind of where i'm where i'm doing onboarding is onboarding the recruiters um so they they do work hard to get to get that information shared. Sometimes the leaders can get a little siloed because they are interested more in talking about their people rather than listening about what other teams are doing for their people. Um, but that's that's really the the biggest problem that I that I'm working on right now is is you know allowing people to see like um, where where are you listening versus where are you just talking. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you get, uh, do you get groups of recruiters coming on board or is it also one by one, like in most organizations here? It depends. Like I've, I've seen, you know, groups of five or six, and then I've seen yeah. like one person and then one week it's like zero. It's just, it's just very cyclical. Yeah. I think if I look at the onboarding programs, no matter the size of the group um, that have been successful, have exactly worked with the objectives that you're just mentioning it. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever I'm designing onboarding, I use behavioral objectives. So mm -hmm. basically look at not only whether they need to know, but also what behavior are we expecting from them mm -hmm. uh, in in their job or in their role, what's, you know, uh, what's feasible to expect from them in week three or in week four. And we use, we sort of use it as behavioral checklists as well. And from that, we derive the actual program. Mm. So I have a question for you about, about that. So um, in, in my, in my role, in my group, we are fully remote. So we don't go into an office. Uh, what's it like for you? Do you do you have people going into an office or do you uh, onboard remotely? Uh, you mean in the Netherlands in general or myself? Yourself. Yeah. So um, currently I'm working for a smaller organization. They have about 1,200 employees, which is one of my biggest clients at the moment. Um, and we have two very big like units within the organization. So one unit is uh, people that only get onboarded by the people that are in that business unit because they have to get very specific uh, knowledge and skills um, on the area that they're coming into. So very often they have no experience in the business unit. They come in and then they are educated by the people that are in that unit. They don't have L and They don't have any L and D background. Um, and there's a group of say 200 people that are in the head office, uh, and that's really one on one. So if you look in general, to come back to your question about remote working in the Netherlands, I feel that the bigger corporations have stayed into remote working. Um, so people get onboarded remotely as well. If you look at the organization that I am currently at, uh, it's so small and they expect people to come into the office for at least two or three days a week. Um, so if you look at like after COVID, um, companies have adopted very different remote strategies and they're onboarding is very often, you know, a resemblance of that. Hmm. Yeah. That's really but, I, I, you know, if I look at my own, because every time I go to a new client, I have my own onboarding as well, right? And I always uh, joke about it a little bit, saying I'm sort of now an Olympic um, uh, player when it comes to, <laughs> to being onboarded <laughs> because I'm, I, I'm not getting paid to, uh, to spend a lot of time getting to know the organization and so what I've learned over time is that I have to filter what I need to know to get the job done that I was hired to do and what is irrelevant for me. So it can really be the case that I don't know about a whole department. And then after six months, they go, but we also have that department. It's like, right. All right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I need to dive into that now. So I sort of learn what's relevant in the moment. And then, of course, I try to get a little bit of a bigger picture of the organization, uh, but I think that helps me to get up to speed quicker. Usually I aim for a month. So I say to a client, if I'm not up to speed after a month, uh, then we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> then we need to reprioritize things. <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Gosh, I was just 
thinking about, you know, my own onboarding experience for, for my current company, because this is the first company where I've, I've onboarded remotely. And there were some things that I really enjoyed about it. And other things that I was like, huh, I probably need to remember this so that when I create the onboarding program, people don't <laughs> feel the way I did. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, there's actually, um, there's a great article that's called the stages of concern. Uh, it's from a Dutch, uh, L and D consultancy organization called Kessels and Smith. I'm sure we could find the link. And, um, uh, that sort of describes, um, from the top of my head, five stages that people go through when they enter a new job. Um, and their concern changes. So the first concern that they have really is, you know, am I in the right place? That's the first concern that I have. Am I in the right place? The second thing is, am I doing the task that I was given right? So that, that really comes after that first bit, like we've discussed in the beginning. And then all, and they sort of come into this survival mode in the beginning where they only can think about themselves. It's very interesting. So people come into a new job. They don't think about colleagues or teams or departments. They think about what am I doing here? Am I in the right place? What task do I need to do? And then the first, the third concern is the people around them. So they go, oh, but who do I need to talk to to make sure that, you know, I get my work done? So I thought that's that might be an interesting article for people to to read, but also to understand and empathize with that first feeling of what am I doing here and, and being overloaded. I remember when I was onboarding at the consultancy organization, which was huge. And I didn't know what I was getting into. It was my second job. And we all got this like lease car from the organization. So if you talk about onboarding, it's not about, only about the content and the tasks, right? So, and we drove with this big bus to this uh, industrial area and there were like 25 cars. And I, I, I will never forget the license plate were on alphabetical order. So we came out of this bus and there were all these cars lining up. And I thought, if this is one group getting onboarded and we all get a car with license plates on alphabetical order, how big is this organization really? <laughs> and how on earth am I going to, you know, understand the ropes? I thought that was terrifying. Yeah. And if someone would have just told me, listen, you know, we, we work in business units and you have, you know, a specific group of expertise that you're going to be part of, don't worry about it. Uh, I would have felt way more at ease. Yeah. You know, you do bring up the, a really interesting point about, you know, psychological safety with, with onboarding um, because, you know, something that I've run into a lot is people are afraid to ask questions because they don't want to look incompetent or like they don't know what they're talking about. And I tell them, well, you don't know what you're talking about. That's why you're here. It's fine. Mm. <laughs> it's up, it's up to your leaders to, and it's up to, to y'all to, you know, create that, that environment of trust to, to where, um, you know, you feel safe asking a question, no matter, you know, how, you know, what, no matter what the question is and no matter when you're asking the question, and then it's up to your leaders to respond in a kind manner to get you the information that you need to get, to get, to uh, get the job done in that moment. Right. And one of the things that I really respected about my, my leader is, you know, I, I had a question for her that was in my mind, super basic. Like I should have known about it. 
in my mind on day three and I was asking her about it on day 30. And so I, I, I was trying, I was trying to, you know, practice what I preach <laughs> and approach my leader. And she was like, Oh yeah, this is the answer. And then that was it. <laughs> so in my mind, yeah. I just kind of, I, I just kind of created this whole thing up in my mind and, and, you know, I, I do that a lot. That's just me though. <laughs> You make, you make you make it bigger because you think it's a big thing. Yeah. Do yeah. you think a psychological safety and the insecurity at in the beginning of a job is different for men than it is for women? Absolutely. Yeah. How? Absolutely. Um, I at least for for women in America, um, yeah, you're 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 gonna we're gonna go into DEI a little bit here. <laughs> so within, huh? How do I want to talk about this? There are a lot of abbreviations around this. You mean diversity and inclusion, right? Yes. Yeah. Diversity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 We can go into that. That's fine. It's it's a hot topic right now. It is. It is. Um, Yeah. So I'll I'll speak from my my personal experience, and hopefully, if there's someone out there listening um, who who feels the same way, I'd love to hear about it. But in in my in my experience, I came from a background where um, in my family. I was always encouraged to speak my mind, to speak candidly, to take up space. But in school, I was taught the opposite. I was taught that women should be, um, you know, small. We should be modest. We should not take up space. And I, I internalized a lot of the a lot of those things into adulthood. And it wasn't until I went to college and I got exposed to a lot of people who didn't come from a background that I came from where I realized, oh, you know what? I, I actually can take up space. I actually do have something to say. Um, and, and if I falter, if I make a mistake, that's fine. That's how you learn and that's how you grow. And so when I when I started going into, into um, my first job, I had a lot of confidence issues because I, I came from having to fight to have my voice heard and and even within myself like there was a lot of of fight to even uh speak up because you know i i I speak two languages and one of the things that i'm always super super conscious about is um am i saying what i actually mean Mm -hmm. and so you add that layer into, (laughs) into what it is to be a woman what it is to be uh, you know, a woman of color in, in the United States. And I, I'm half Mexican, half white, since I don't know if people mm-hmm. are going to be able to see me here. Um, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there, there is that, there is that aspect of, you know, intersectionality is what we call it here in the United States is what do you bring to the table as a woman? What do you bring to the table as a person of color? What do you bring to the table with your heritage uh, or with your socioeconomic mm. position? All of these things. And and I went to a college that is predominantly white, cisgender male. Mm. There's so much confidence mm. <laughs> and a little a little <laughs> a little bit of inflated confidence in there. And and you know um, I, I can't remember where I read this, but they, I I read somewhere that women feel that they have to qualify for 80 to 100% of the um, the job description to apply, whereas a man feels like if he's got 40 to 60%, he's a shoe in Yeah. 
So, so I do think psychological safety shows up in the business because, you know, you've, you've got that, that level of, of confidence misplaced or, or well-placed who, who knows, but I think that confidence shows up more in men than it does in, in women. Now, of course, there are people that women out there who um, buck the system and power to them. And I'm going to absolutely try my best to, to emulate them. But I think that's kind of how it, how it is here, at least for me. Yeah. What about you? I'm, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that there has been a time, especially in school when you're that young, um, that you're constrained like that. I, I think um, there's many answers to this one. Um, I'll get it back to corporate learning in a sec. Um, I think in the Netherlands, um, we're all brought up in a way that we can have a voice, um, uh, no matter the gender. I think uh, it's not the same everywhere, but I think in general, it's like that. Uh, there is, however, a lot of masculinity in general, a lot of toxic masculinity as well. Uh, and there has been a lot of, um, not necessarily in school, but in organizations and in, in corporate settings where I was this like smart, eager girl that wanted to, you know, I'm the, I'm the one that's sitting front row and raising my hand. My daughter is five. She does the same. And then you're sort of, if you come into a corporate world, you're sort of seen as like this smart ass. Um, because you either know the answer or you ask a question so that you know the answer. Um, and I, there was one, uh, and, and so I'm not only looking at it from an, from an onboarding point of view, because yes, when you're onboarding, um, um, I was always the girl still in front of the row and, you know, raising my hand, wanting, um, uh, <laughs> wanting a question answered, not always accepted by the leaders that I then encountered. So if I look at my onboarding experience and, and masculinity in that sense, it's more what sort of leaders have I encountered and how have they given me the feeling of giving me that space or not? So there was one guy in a corporate environment that was very hierarchical and uh, very non-acceptant of, I think, women in general, but especially women who challenge. And so for me, I am brought up, I've been taught it's okay to challenge by my parents in schools. And, you know, so it, so uh, because that's how we learn, that's sort of like the paradigm that we live under. And so, so I, I distinctly remember that I said in this conversation, I said, but I just want to, and this was, if you talk about bilingual, uh, this was a job that was completely English. And of course, my native language is Dutch. Um, and very often I know the words, not, you know, uh, there's some nuance in which I make a mistake. So what happened was we were in a meeting and he said, why are you constantly like challenging me? Um, and I remember saying, well, I just want to spar a little bit, but, <laughs> but sparring in English is not, has nothing to do with boxing. Right. It's, it's. It's literally just tossing ideas around and then seeing who has a great idea, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, but he he thought I wanted to fight him, like literally. So I said to him, we're just sparring a little bit. And and so he got very like upset with me. Uh, I, I also, to be fair, I left the company um, because of his attitude and the fact that I didn't get any space to thrive. And that started already in the onboarding. I, I knew it was a good company that, it, that I wanted to work for. I thought the team was brilliant, 
but the leader just basically couldn't accept someone in his team would do that. And uh, I, I knew that in week one, wow. uh, uh, based on his behavior. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting looking back on it. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. And I, I feel like you and I could talk so much more about this, this particular topic. <laughs> Yeah. There's so much, there's so much to bring to the table about, you know, who, who, um, you know, what, how, how women show up in the workplace and what, what do we bring with us that we don't realize might be baggage or what, and how does that impact our work? Um, yeah, like, I feel like there could be like a whole other episode <laughs> about yeah. in terms of onboarding, <laughs> how do you, what, what do you bring to the table? Is it baggage or is it skills? Is it a combination of both? And then, um, how does that impact your, your onboarding experience? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the conversation that we've just had, what, what I feel is, is what we, what we talked about is how, Whatever background you bring, right? Yeah. Um, wherever you come from, you need to make sure that people come in and feel safe. Yes. That they feel wanted, yes. that they understand how the culture works so that they can sue some can do some sort of due diligence of do I belong here or not? And if I don't belong here, is is that okay too? Mm-hmm. Um, or they can come in to challenge the status quo. I'm I'm not saying that's a bad <laughs> thing. Um uh and 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 then we're saying, you know, you need to equip them the right way to make sure that they also at some point get up to speed and contribute to the organization. It's not only the psychological safety, but it's also the making sure that you that you do a contribution to the organization. What, what do you take from this? Uh, I think another element to this is when when you're onboarding someone in terms of psychological safety, do they feel tolerated or do you feel accepted? Because I think I think if they feel one way versus the other, I think that that kind of um, it it changes the direction in which someone might go. Because if you feel accepted, then you probably feel a little braver and can probably challenge the status quo a little bit more successful. Yeah, I I, I think um, you have to have. I know there's a level of psychological safety. I can't sum it up right now, but I know there is. Yeah, and um, the first level is that you you feel accepted and then I think there are some level above it and the, and the final level is that you feel the freedom to actually challenge the current status quo right so mm-hmm. it, uh, I can't remember the levels correctly um, but I, I do know that it goes it goes up to a certain point to be able to do that first you have to just feel it's okay to be here mm-hmm. right yeah Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I know we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but I feel, I feel like you and I could, could talk way more about this, <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. This was, this was so fun. Thank you so much for, for talking with me and um, it, that I, I hope this is not our last conversation together. Definitely not. No, we'll be in touch. Yeah. Uh, hopefully uh, um, have a conversation like this again. For sure. Uh, maybe go into the DNI uh, even more. Yes, that'd be um, fun. And thanks. Yeah, thanks so much. It's, it was very interesting for me to see both your educational as well as your LMD background and see how that was. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Of course. Happy to share. And, uh, it, and yeah, this has just been fantastic. <laughs> if you're a regular listener, you may know that I'm in the studio when we record the podcast to make sure that things work and to remind the speakers when we get near time. I was so engaged in this conversation, I forgot to tell them. And that's why this podcast is slightly longer than usual. We'd love your feedback on this one.
Is there demand for more on this topic? I know Dolores and Henrietta will be up for recording more. Please do let us know. A massive thank you to them for their time and contribution, and you can find all their details in the show notes, along with links to some of the things that they've spoken about. Make sure that you mention women talking about learning when you connect with them. It's incredibly satisfying for our guests to know that people have been listening. We're recording again in September, and if you're interested in being on the podcast, please do let us know how to connect with us, our email, and how to donate to the show are also in the notes. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Women Talking About Learning, and next time, it's the belonging one. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.